0: Hi everyone, welcome to episode 11 of the Doorways to Sustainable Schools podcast. The idea of this podcast is to look at practical ways that schools can engage in London Climate Action Week. Today's podcast is a special celebration of London Climate Action Week 2020. The week had over 200 events, with over 30,000 people taking part across a huge range of sectors. Due to the pandemic, pretty much all of them took place virtually. But they weren't any less inspiring. We want to give you a flavour of the week but we also want to have a focus on schools and the young people involved. So we've selected a montage of clips from some of our favourite things from the week. Some of the clips are short and others we allow a bit more time so you can get a real feel of the events. We start the podcast with clips from two superb videos made from the week. The first is the Choose Life video inspired by the film Trainspotting, and the second is the London Climate Action Week launch film. We then go on to have an introduction to Let's Go Zero with Alex Green from Ashton, and in it there's a short clip of Alex's interview with me. Then there's a poem from the brilliant poet Fakaya Fatuga at the Ashton Awards, followed by an interview led by Studio 2909 with some six formers from Sydney Russell School in Barking and Dagenham. Afterwards, there's an interview with Zamzam Ibrahim, the president of the NUS, from the Ashton Awards again. Followed by some superb people at the Semble webinar, including Nick Gardner, Carly Sefton, Maya Craze, and the incredible Eco-Emeralds. And finally, we'll finish with the Ashton Awards again. These clips are by no means exhaustive, and we hope it leaves you wanting more. We've put links to each of these clips in our show notes, and you'll be able to listen and often watch the full versions. London Climate Action Week is adding more and more videos onto its YouTube channel. So if it whets your appetite, take a look there too. It was a fantastic week and I'll be unpicking it all with my co-chair from the schools group, Marlon Emera, in our next podcast, where we'll also discuss the next London Climate Action Week and our route to COP26, the UN Climate Change Conference in Glasgow. But for now, put your headphones on, put your worries to one side and choose life.
1: Choose life. Choose business as usual. Choose polluting the sea, the air, the planet. Choose floods, storms and fires. Choose inaction, denial, waste, convenience. Choose overheating, overmeeting, over depleting. Choose destruction. These are the choices we were making. Then along comes pandemic. Pause. Lockdown. Out of nowhere. The big wake-up call for us all. So how do we recover? How do we progress? New choices. Big, bold, brave and beautiful choices. Choose greener, cleaner, smarter, sweeter. Choose kindness. Choose goodness, choose joy, choose nature, full moons, lagoons, mountains, valleys, life on earth. Choose reforestation, clean energy protecting our oceans. Choose radical policy change, system change. Choose a healthy economy, sustainable business. Choose a new normal, a brighter, safer next normal. Choose science. Choose less than 1.5 degrees temperature change. Choose the Paris Agreement and sticking to it. Zero carbon, zero waste, zero hate. Choose love. Choose massive regeneration in this generation. Choose brighter, better, all together. It's our choice. Choose life.
2: Welcome to London Climate Action Week 2020. This week, we're harnessing the power of London's global networks, bringing together ambitious thinkers and doers to tackle the tough problems and push forward the frontiers of global climate action. This week, we'll be hosting over 200 events covering a huge diversity of issues, from reforming the global finance system to youth activists tackling climate justice, from building a sustainable London to restoring nature globally from understanding the impact of the American elections to tackling the mental health issues raised by the climate crisis. This diversity really reflects London's richness and its huge global reach. Our mission is clear, London Climate Action Week aims to build the collaboration to drive an equitable, resilient and net zero world. So now let's hear about this year's themes and from some of the people taking part.
3: At the London Climate Action Week, we'll be discussing the green recovery and how to ensure that it delivers um, thriving and just societies through putting climate, nature and poverty at the very heart.
4: With one year to go until the next UN Climate Conference, COP26, in Glasgow next November, the roadmap to get there has become a bit uncertain. So this roadmap to COP26 theme at London Climate Action Week is going to bring our London climate community together to discuss and debate the actions that need to be taken over the next 12 months so that we make sure we have maximum climate progress and action out of that COP26 summit in Glasgow.
5: One of the themes of this year's London Climate Action Week is how to achieve a net zero carbon budget, and that means uh, answering a central question which is how to pull together all of the energy and uh, creativity and talent and innovation and the expertise that exists within London so that together we can uh, decarbonize our city as fast as humanly possible.
6: London, like many cities, has declared a climate emergency and in an emergency you mobilize. And that's why we have a whole of society mobilization approach to London Climate Action Week. All of us in our roles as consumers, investors, makers and citizens, can bend the curve away from a bleak future. This is what London Climate Action Week is all about.
7: At London Climate Action Week, we're throwing the best pension party in town. We're going to be launching
8: our project for the UK's first ever food poverty map.
3: We're going to be sharing practical advice and guidance for businesses, charities and educators on how to really help kids from diverse backgrounds connect to and engage with climate action.
0: We are empowering Bain Voices to lead the climate conversation.
9: We are working to raise $10 billion every year for not for profit climate solutions.
0: We're working together to help schools become more sustainable
7: places. We're exploring the link between the food we eat, intensive animal agriculture, and the climate crisis.
5: We'll be raising awareness of the environmental impact of the digital industry.
7: We are discussing ways in which we can face the dual challenge of flooding and
10: climate change. We are launching the Red Cross World Disasters Report, looking at the humanitarian impact of the climate crisis affecting people right now.
11: We're looking at how finance and a COVID-19 green recovery link to climate,
8: nature and development. We're sharing the launch of the Let's Go Zero Schools campaign.
12: At London Climate Action Week, we're calling all Londoners to
6: commit to the People's Pledge to replenish Earth by 2030.
8: It's Charity Ashton um, and we have been um, working with schools for um, about 13 years now through our awards programme and through different programmes that we do. And this year we're really delighted to be launching Let's Go Zero and it's such a treat to be sharing it with everyone at London Climate Action Week as well. So, Let's Go Zero is um, supported by lots of different organizations. We have a whole wonderful team, a a coalition of organizations that are working to help schools to be more sustainable, that are supporting this campaign. So, it's not just us here to share it with you. We're so delighted that it's something that's really a collaborative effort that's bringing all of the collective superpowers of the great people that are trying to support schools to be more sustainable, bringing everyone together, everyone's expertise and their networks to make this as strong as it can be. So this campaign shows that schools want to be a force for change. They want to be part of the solution and they want to stand with the students and take climate action. That's the idea of the campaign to really raise the voices of schools across the UK. Schools can sign up to the campaign and when they do, they do that through the website. And when they're doing that, they're saying three things. They're saying they want to be zero carbon by 2030, that they're taking action to get there. And that they want more help to do more. So I'll break those down a little bit more now. So they want to be zero carbon by 2030. It's about showing ambition, it's about being bold and brave, and schools saying, we want to be part of the solution. We want to lead this. We want to lead in our communities. We want to lead our students and their families and really show what's possible and how you can be zero carbon by 2030. And we know it's incredibly hard it's a big challenge this is an enormous challenge that we're all facing but schools want to be the ones that try and get there and get there first so they're taking action now As the second thing so we don't mind what you're doing as a school as long as you're doing something as long as you've started you've started down that road to doing something and for some schools they might just be doing small projects within their within their schools others might be doing everything they might be all on the eco bling they'll be they'll have ticked every box and there's schools in every point of the journey that are that are able to to take part in this and know that they're taking some action themselves they're doing whatever they can already and the third thing that they want more help to do more this is really important that we they're saying they want to work with government they want to they want to help Government to help schools, not just their own schools, but other schools, to be able to do so much more and to be able to to take more action. And that might be through finance, it might be through giving them a mandate, it might be through regulation. There's all kinds of tricks in that bag that we can use to help schools to be able to do more. And they also think it should be a bit more of a level playing field that all schools should be judged in the same way about this. So, what is a zero carbon school? So our definition what we use is we think it's a school that on its site and in its activities it doesn't contribute to climate change through carbon emissions and for the techie amongst you that's about that's talking about going to scope 3 for schools schools um the impact that they have a carbon impact across lots of different activities um and we think that within your school you should be looking at all the different things that you're doing you think you should be looking at all the different areas where you can impact the your carbon footprint and so we're working with lots of different organisations to see how we can make schools really explore their wider footprint now this slide here shows you some of the different areas that we think have you have an impact as a school so energy use in your buildings procurement food water travel waste and school grounds so, for example, the data that we're seeing shows that sometimes up to 40% of a school's footprint is actually through their procurement through what they're buying. And sometimes it can be as, as little as 20% can be from their energy use in the building. So we really have to look at that whole picture of a school and a school's footprint to know really how they can be reducing it and getting it to zero. And this slide also shows you loads of brilliant organizations just a sample really of the wonderful organizations that are doing things that can help schools already. And we want more schools to take more action to do more of these these activities and programs and plans and use all these resources that will help them to do more. So. Um, let's go zero isn't just about signing up to the campaign it's not just a it's not a petition it's about taking more action so early in next year and we think this will probably be about february march time we're hoping that to introduce an action planning toolkit which will be um brought to us with the wonderful people at global action plan um who um, bring you transform our world the website and we're going to put the action planning toolkit on that website and what will happen is your school can go on there, you can look and see, right, what am I doing already? It will survey what actions you've taken already um, and a little bit about what your parameters are. So maybe what size school, where you are, what you've done already, what your funding setup is, and then it will give you a whole lot of options about what you can do next. And it will give you an indication of how much that might cost, how much time it might take, but then also looking at the carbon impact it's going to have. Because we want schools to start taking a much more measured and meaningful Decision basis on what they do next so that they can really get more bang for their buck. So, the next slide just gives you a little bit of um, contact information. So, there's the website, that's where schools sign up. So, let'sgozero.org. That's how you can find out some more information. There's a frequently asked questions section on that. Um, schools sign up through that website as a portal there that they do that um, through. We're also next week going to have a a little ticker tape thing of school, all the names of the schools that have already signed up on there. And also you can see um, who's supporting it, all the different organisations that are supporting the campaign. So if you have any questions at all, either you're a school or you're working with schools, and you have any questions and you want to get more information or get some more materials to help share this with other schools then just get in touch through letsgozero at ashton.org and also please do follow us on twitter and tweet away about this exciting new campaign and the twitter handle is there so now i'm going to have a chat with martin so martin if I if i we can magically bring you onto the stage there we go so i think i'm going to start off with my question <coughs> about what's. The favourite thing that you've done at your school um, that's helped you to cut the carbon within your school?
0: Yeah well it's it's actually based around the the new story but it's I've been doing it for most of my time at Glebe so my school is a special school we learned very quickly or I learned very quickly that um, to engage my young people in geography more practical approaches to the subject were better so we started to do lots of outdoor learning and it's developed from there into whole range of things. And as part of that, we do a lot of gardening, do a lot of food growing, we do tree planting and so on. And we link them back to the curriculum. And it's it's brilliant. I love doing it. But the the magical orange doorway is the thing I'm so excited about. It's it's basically uh, using a storytelling approach to introduce a concept of sustainable food and you'll have to listen to it and i would love you to listen to it please and tell me what you think because it's my first ever attempt at writing anything like this but the concept in the school is it's going to be a school project for young people in my school and a refuge in peru that we link with um so look at some simple foods that we use and to think of them more sustainably and, and at a school level it's going to be very sort of simple we'll be we'll be talking warts and all about things that go right and go wrong um we're gonna run this project to cop 26 um and at a second level there's going to be kind of a higher level well maybe not higher adult level discussion um about sustainable food and about linking with with a school in peru and so on and we'll run that parallel to it so um it's really exciting and one of the things i'm excited about with let's go zero is I have no idea how a project like this will reduce our carbon um uh, carbon footprint. I, I really don't and i think you know it. It's, it may well be that we find out this is um not the best way to reduce our carbon footprint there are other more dramatic ways doesn't mean we'll change it um, or it may well be it leads to particular actions through the project as we go on that we think if we did x instead of y for example it might um, linked to procurement discussions about food for the school, um, canteen and so on. Um, so you bring in food miles, et cetera, et cetera. But, but it's, it's very much like Let's Go Zero. We're right at the start of the project. It literally started yesterday. Very exciting and we with a lovely group of people. And really excited to develop the project with Peru because I think carbon um, reduction can get very dry and technical. And it, it really is all about humanity as well. And I think linking with the people in Peru reminds us that there are real issues. We can't just take it for granted. We need to learn how to speak to them in a different language and so on. So that's all tied in. There's a Spanish element to it. Working with my colleague, who's the Spanish teacher at the school, on that as well. So, yeah, really excited about that. See where it goes. But please listen and tell me, be honest. I, I would like honest feedback. That's Honestly.
8: fantastic to hear. And it's such such an interesting project. And just to let you know, we will put a link um at the end of this session to everything that we talk about that, that has Thank a link you. to it. So you'll get that link, everyone, and you can go and listen as well. So next question really is why is climate action important now for schools to be taking? I mean, given everything else that we did and with COVID yeah. and bubbles and all
10: important yeah.
0: to be
8: taking action now.
0: I, I, I think probably because of everything that's happening. I think, um, you know, I very much come a little bit, like I said, with the previous question, um, very much come at climate action with two pronged approach that, um, young people last year were crying out for schools and government to do something about climate action. They didn't feel enough was being done. Um, and you know, we try to respond to that. And I think, um, I very much feel that young people, you know, they have a right, obviously, they're terrified about, they hear all these stories about what's going on, they have a right to know what's going on, and they, but they also have a right to learn and not be terrified, and we, I think we as adults have a duty to offer them hope, and I think that brings me into the second part of it, which is climate action, that you can't offer you can't lie to young people you have to tell them the truth about these things but you can offer real hope through real practical solutions so for example i had i did a podcast with annette Figueredo, which we actually re-promoted today she's from the greater london authority and they've done the most remarkable document for schools an advice document about how schools can become more climate resilient with some really practical sensible steps that schools can take and young people can get involved in that and they can see that okay we accept that london is probably going to get hotter it's probably going to have more droughts, it's probably going to suffer from extreme extreme weather events and flooding but there are things that you can do in your school to mitigate some of those things so you might not have the power to stop climate change in its tracks but you do have the power to make your school a little bit more climate resilient. So that's one thing that you can do. And I think, you know, there's lots of things that are out there where people have shown there are new inventions, new ways to behave, new practices that that are out there already that, that schools can adopt and we can show young people that offer positivity and hope and it's just that that idea of and not moving away from the reality of climate change but by taking action the physical act i don't even mean political action there's nothing wrong with that but just some kind of response to it instead of just worrying and feeling that you are doing something that is genuinely helping your situation i think it's really really important and you know i'm still learning like with everybody else and even at this week there's just been so many fantastic
12: Now we've got something really special for you. Rakea Fatuga is a creative writer and a poet based in London. In 2017, she won the Spread the Word Young People's Laureate for London Poetry Awards. And in 2018, she was shortlisted for the Outspoken Poetry Prize and she won the Roundhouse Poetry Slam. Here she is performing her spoken word, Enterprise. Welcome, Rakea. Hi,
13: I'm
10: Rakea Fatuga and I'm going to share two poems with you. The first is called, When Asked How Her People Would Fight For Tomorrow. She said today, I have already been in emergency, birthed children and waded in it, chin deep in crisis, the surface shimmering like oil on a polluted sea. The pedestals of place, possession or privilege kept you dry, gave you time to overlook my poverty, placelessness persecution, a height that let you call it someone else's fight, someone else's ocean. Even when it glimmered by your side, even when it thrashed and drowned your neighbours. Now crisis laps against your shoe, wets your child's feet, and you realise how small they are. And even you, no one is too tall to feel. No one is too safe to fear. To look in the face of the past, it's foaming, rising waves, unruly like the future. To look in the face of it and call it emergency. This next poem is called Enterprise. As the climate changes, the finance we refused will seem small. It costs more to mend a body wrecked than to break its fall. Now that our body is falling, flailing limbs of blue and juniper green dropping to the jaws of a hurricane. The leg will suffer what the foot has done and the arm, the hand and the shoulder, the neck, the waters and land a foreboded wreck. Mitigation and money are sisters. Together they'll nurse the world, mending the cracks aligning the spine and supporting the back, caring for the seas as they meet with the skies, knowing where to begin raising clean enterprise like open palms that say tomorrow will be better if we prepare for it today.
6: So we are thinking in our project about the topic of clean air and we're very conscious that air pollution is a global problem. And I don't know how much you were aware during the pandemic when it first uh, hit the news in the spring, but there were a lot of connections made between air pollution, levels of air pollution, and people who are developing symptoms of COVID-19 or or suffering it worse. There are lots of reasons why uh, the, the reports were saying because Um, They understood that if you live in an area of poor air quality, your lungs are already compromised, so your breathing's not so great, and so you're more susceptible to diseases that attack your lungs and and things like that, Um, but also that perhaps in the particulate matter that is in the air, the virus might attach to it, and therefore it could be a vector for transmission. Uh, What's also really interesting is that London has actually gone down in terms of air pollution in the last four years. And so it's actually a really exciting topic to be able to realise that if you make difference in a local level, you can actually start to make a change. So instead of feeling all doom and gloom about these big environmental challenges that we all face, actually something like air pollution is something we really can get a handle on and do something about. So we wanted to talk about air, air pollution and clean air with the whole school and start to support teachers to think between the different subjects. Um, But also we're really interested in clean air as something that helps your breathing, but it's also kind of concept. So the idea of clean air being, feeling that you're able to breathe, feeling that your your head is clear enough that you're accessing clean air so you can actually imagine. Because everybody's trying to work out how we go forward from this pandemic and deal with all the challenges that we face in society and we need to be really imaginative but lots of people are feeling maybe it's really hard to imagine because there's so much else going on and stress and anxiety and whatever else so that's the context for our project and we're going to be supporting teachers to work across discipline but then also bringing in some artists and supporting young people to express their ideas around these topics and then we're going to turn their ideas into song and then the school's going to sing it
8: Lots of year eights, I think. That's the plan. It's like a big year eight <laughs> project. <laughs> if you can imagine mass year eights. Yeah.
6: <laughs> so that's the context for our project. Um, so uh, some questions for you. So do you care about having clean air? Do you think it's important? Yes,
11: greatly. Yeah.
6: Why, why is it important for you? Um,
11: I think, like you said, how actually like clean air will also affect us and like our lungs. I think clean air is something that for people that might not like know much about the climate change or even like climate change in general, like being able to link clean air that to actually us and like affecting our lives, it might open people's eyes if they're not too sure about the environment. In fact, they can think about themselves if they want to.
6: Do <laughs> you, you deal with it in your, is it you that does geography, Mia? Uh, yeah, Yeah. does it come up in your geography A-level, talking about clean air at all? Uh, I
14: don't think so.
6: One of the things that we're finding is that the curriculum isn't really talking about some of these big issues that impact our lives. And so part of our project is also to identify these gaps in the curriculum and then think about how we can support teachers so that as you go through school, you're learning about these things and able to, to do something about it. I don't know if you know what the air pollution levels are like near your school. Do you know if they're bad, relative to London? Have you ever thought about it?
11: I mean, I would assume it's bad outside our school. Cars always going by, it's like a main road. Yeah.
6: I mean, the nice thing about your school is it's right next to that large park. So at least you've got some big green open space.
8: Okay. Do you use the park? Do you actually go there? Or do you tend to kind of go from school to home, you know, and, and just see it in the distance?
11: I walk through it sometimes. Yeah, my house is the other way, so I walk the other way. Parks on the other side. There's loads of parks. Yeah, where, where I live, there's like a huge farm. Just it's cool. Like we usually go on walks there, so it's, <laughs> it's cool. But yeah, like actually in Dagenham, there's not. There's just parks and that's it really. Just houses. I mean, w- we've
6: been reading about your incredible estate that the school's on that was built to try and. Provide a better quality of life for residents when it was built. It's hundred years old now, isn't it? The Beckenbrey Estate, um, but uh, which is ancient history for you. Um, but um, but I think it's it's really inspiring how it was built with a lot of the green space and open space um, in mind. Do you think that having more green spaces is is one of the ways in which we should evolve our cities? That they're better yeah. places to live. Yeah,
11: to definitely. Yeah. There are like they're just. There's so many, like, I don't know, for like in the borough we live in, there's always like construction going on, there's always a new flat or a new building and it's like, like slowly and slowly like the green space and like just the plain land is like going and being cut into, which is like horrible.
6: Well maybe that's something that, that we can help support you to, to campaign about locally if it's, if it's something that young people use green space and, and believe in its importance that might be something very practical locally that we can help think about through our project, who you need to speak to or who we need to address. Because when we're
12: writing our songs,
6: it's really- interesting.
12: It's with real excitement that I welcome Zamzam Ibrahim to speak to us today. Zamzam is the president of the NUS and she's a vital voice in the climate movement. Here she is to give her perspective on student climate activism and the global climate crisis.
13: Young people today are growing up in a world radically different to the one that we were born into. When we look around today where the climate disaster is never off our screens and why political leaders across the globe siddle up to climate change deniers and where we've been taught to accept the inevitable destruction of our planet and with this crisis that we find ourselves in now, where the nation are clapping for essential workers simultaneously seen as disposable, we really have to ask ourselves why this is. And no matter how you approach the issue, the issue is always systematic. You can't fix a problem if you can't identify its root. I really believe our leaders are making, bad decision, are making bad decisions because they were badly educated. Our schools, our colleges, our universities, our education factories are more interested in preparing us to pass our exams than developing us as critical thinkers and as global citizens. Think about it we're assessed on what we can remember not what we can do with our knowledge our education system teaches us to compete with our rivals not to collaborate with our friends we're led to believe that sustainability is this niche subject not something that is fundamental to everything that we learn and do our education system teaches us in silos even though everything is connected we leave education with so much debt that we feel obliged to apply for the best paid jobs rather than the jobs that will make the world a better place the whole system teaches us to prioritize short-term profit over long-term prosperity David Orr, an academic and activist, said, It isn't the world's poorest and least, well edu- least educated people that are doing the most damage. It's those with BScs and BAs, PhDs, and I could not agree more. Our environmental NGOs and international NGOs are constantly fighting bad decisions made by well educated people. The student strikers in Japan recently likened it to a game of bash them all, and I see what they mean. As soon as we get rid of one urgent problem, like fracking, another one pops up. Like Heathrow, the Amazon fires, and we all have to stop, jump on to stop it. Constantly fighting bad decisions made by well-educated people is exhausting. And for this reason, our Teach the Future campaign, supported by Ashton Foundation, is key. And I was so excited to launch the first bill written by young people in parliament earlier this year. We've seen young people around the globe mobilise, building movements of movements that recognises that the fight fought in silos is a battle already lost. We as a movement are not only about dismantling barriers in our curriculum, we dismantle barriers in every facet of society. Internationalism is key in this fight and the recognition that the actions taken by the global north is paid by the global south. We know that we can change the formal and informal curriculums through our campaigns and programmes, but the subliminal curriculum requires capital investment. Updating upgrading our learning spaces should be a national infrastructure priority because we don't just learn in these buildings, we learn from these buildings. Imagine if every new educational building, school and campus was net zero by 2020 and every existing building was net zero by 2030 and I'm so excited to be working in coalition with Ashton to achieve this. I guess to end, as young people we've always been at the forefront of transformative campaigns. We rise to the challenges ahead, we stand ready to mobilize, to organise, to protest, to march and to strike for a better planet. we had to change the world, and we remain pretty unapologetic about that.
12: Hello everyone, and
8: welcome to our webinar on supporting youth climate action in our communities, which we're hosting as part of London Climate Action Week. So first, I'm going to hand over to Amanda, um, Semble's CEO, to tell you a little bit more about what we do.
3: Hi everybody and welcome to this webinar. We're all so excited about it. I can feel the excitement brewing from that classroom down there uh, where they've just been eating pizza, so they're raring to go. Um, So a little bit about Semble just to set the context. So Semble was founded about 10 years ago by Nick Gardner, our chair for tonight, and Mark Shearer. And they set it up because they were really keen to do something about the the world of climate in their local communities so they started supporting local community groups to do really important stuff around climate and slowly but surely they started to support more than just things around climate action and they started to do things around mental health and food provision and so the organization grew to become this wonderful thing that was renamed Semble last year to demonstrate the fact that what it tries to do is bring people together to make change happen from the grassroots up. That's what we're all about. We're driving positive change, absolutely from the grassroots. And we do this in in two main ways. We basically run movement campaigns which is all about trying to get people to take action around an issue which may be on their own or at home in their families or in their communities so that's one thing we do and it could be things as simple as planting seeds or making a bird feeder Um, and then the other thing that we do is we do grant making campaigns which is about giving out grants on behalf of companies or funders to support fantastic work going on at a very local grassroots level through fantastic community organizations of whom there are thousands all around the country and all around where we each live so it's a very lovely organization and we are so delighted to have this brilliant group of people who are going to be on our panel tonight so a very warm welcome to our panelists a very warm welcome to you for joining us this afternoon and i'm now going to hand over to nick who's going to run the session as a wonderful chair that he is
5: Thanks, Amanda. Yeah, it's lovely to be here um, back at Semble. It's, uh, it's so exciting to be able to speak about youth climate action in local communities, two of my favourite topics. So I'm thrilled to introduce our panel today. Um, but first of all, we're going to head over to Carly, uh, if you don't mind going first, Carly. Carly is the CEO of Learning Through Landscapes, a charity that wants to enable children to connect with nature, be more active and more engaged with their learning. Learning Through Landscapes or LTL advocates for the benefits of outdoor learning and play at school and preschool and focuses their resources on educational settings because they believe that this is where children will derive the greatest benefit. Carly's had a varied career before uh, Learning Through Landscapes she was running a community farm and preschool for Oasis Community Learning. So over to you Carly.
7: Thanks so much Nick and hi everyone and thank you Symbol, for inviting me to speak today so I'm just going to share my screen in this great zoom time let's hope that works and can people see that if I could have some thumbs up that'd be great so just um, so on an amazing introduction to learning through landscapes, so I will keep my bit quite brief. We have been around for 30 years supporting environmental projects. We work with between 800,000 and a million children a year. We've levied over £25 million into schools to support outdoor learning and play, and we like to do a lot of work with governing bodies and governments to promote the importance of outdoor learning and play. Um, that's been really successful in Scotland, where it's now embedded in the curriculum, and we are working very very hard to try and get the time of education more on board in England. So, I just want to talk a little bit about my concern that we are excluding some young people from the climate debate and explain a bit about why I think that's happening. So, earlier in the summer, LTL run an amazing, well, is still running an amazing project called My School My Planet. It's a project worth just over a quarter of a million pounds funded by the National Lottery Heritage Fund. Delivered in 48 schools across the four nations and it's focused on areas of high deprivation and, or, and schools that have large multicultural communities and it was mainly set up to support schools as they returned post lockdown. It used the LTL philosophy of a head, heart and hand approach. And that basically is, we believe that children and young people really have to be connected to nature to understand it and want to protect it. We do that by head-wise, so curriculum knowledge, you work with teachers to embed it in a natural curriculum framework. Heart, because it's really important that young people believe in what they're doing and actually the love of nature is what makes us want to protect it. And also we want to make practical changes through our projects. Now, the thing that was interesting about My School, My Planet, it has three curriculum linked topics. They were soils and food, ecosystems and climate change. Now, we all were convinced that climate change would be the one that most schools wanted to get engaged in, and to the point that actually we came up with arguments why they should try the other two. Because we just thought it would be an overwhelming response because of everything we've seen Greta do and the climate strikes. So what we were really shocked to see, and we haven't got all the data yet, is that out of the 42 schools that have reported their data so far, only six of those schools have chosen to engage in the climate change conversation. Now to us, this was really shocking. And what it did to us is begin to question the young people um, and their teachers about maybe why they didn't choose to learn more about climate. And one of the things we discovered working in areas of deprivation, and it's what my background is as well, is actually it wasn't seen as a priority. And I think this is why I'm concerned that young people are being excluded from the debate because some young children and, and young people aren't actively able to get involved in the conversation, they don't feel it's relevant to them. So I've been thinking a lot and with the evaluated project about what this trend suggests. And in that time, while looking around other research, I came across this chart from the Child and Poverty Action Group. And this research was carried out when they spoke to young people about living in poverty. And if you look at those emotions, those feelings, those things you have to tackle, where do you want to be an activist in that? Where is your space in your life and your head to engage in those conversations? and therefore the other thing we know is as a consumer if you're living in poverty you don't get the, the luxury of making green choices if you're being fair your family's being supported by food banks you haven't got the choice around where you engage your food and local resource food from and if you are looking if you're using a electric meter for your gas and electric energy you don't always, you go for what costs the most cost effective not what is the most green And therefore, in all the things we do going forward, we need to start making sure that we are able to engage children where their families may not be able to support in a way, um, them to make more green choices, but for them to still feel that they have a really important voice to play in the debate. One of the things we're looking at is what we should do and what we should say if we're trying to engage young people, mainly from areas of deprivation, but all young people, in further climate action, and the things that we come at, have come up with are looking for inclusivity in all activities, whether that's racial, gender, you know, economic—that everything is accessible. Finding young other community groups where there are people involved in climate change already, where their their voices and their faces may be familiar to you. So one thing we struggled with, because it's a very white sector, the natural environment sector, is to have a mix, a really multicultural delivery team and so we've gone to community groups to try and get those spaces to try and find young activists and we've been working with a lot of movements that have helped us do that and we had a cultural consultant on the programme to make sure that we were really hitting the mark with that. Be careful when asking for behavioural change because actually not all young people have the ability to be able to make changes in their home life and what we don't want them to do is feel excluded from the debate because they can't make those changes around plastic reduction or around things like travel engage in experimental empathetic learning which is one of my favorites so just love what you do create awe and wonder everything ltl do we try to create awe and wonder and allow freedom of thought and encourage creativity what greta and the climate strikes have done is amazing But I'm really excited about what comes next. What's the next big movement we see young people doing? So just to finish off, this is how we all see those big strikes. They are bright and colourful and everybody's moving in the same direction. But as somebody who's worked in education for a long time, I'm going to play you a short film about what I think running any campaign or engaging young people can be like. If you try and look at all the different lanes as they go across, you may see what I'm trying to make. So we can pick up the hurdle, we can go round the hurdle, we can get our mate to jump over the hurdle, we can go under the hurdle. But what we have to do is make sure every young person is engaged in this important issue and don't exclude the young people who necessarily are looking at the totally different approach to it. As educators, I think we often want things done a certain way. And what I'm saying is for your children severely dyslexic who don't engage in the classroom normally, they could be the children have that creative mind to tackle and find a solution to something that all of us are really struggling to do. So let children have freedom over their education when it comes to this, let them be creative and let's see where it goes. And as Sir David, our wonderful patron, said, if children grow up not knowing about nature and appreciating it, they will not understand it. And if they don't understand it, they won't protect it. And the big question is, if they don't, who will?
5: Thank you, Carly. That was really... Uh, really thought-provoking, and it was great to see that hurdles video. What a wonderful metaphor for running any campaign, actually, not just a youth-focused one. Um, but it's uh, it's a lovely point actually for us to move straight on to our next panelist, um, Maya Rose. Uh, thanks for joining us, Maya, and uh, welcome. Because I know you've had some problems getting on today. Um, we're very really excited to have you with us today, Maya Rose Craig, um, otherwise known as uh, Bird Girl. You might have seen on social media. Is a British Bangladeshi conservationist, environmentalist writer, speaker, race activist and diversity expert. She's the president of the organization Black to Nature which she set up at the age of 14 and has organized a nature camp for BAME children from inner city Bristol. At 18 she's an ambassador for the Wildlife Trust, Survival International, EcoStreams, patron of the Sustainable Goals Centre and the Tony Trust and an RSPB England committee member. In September 2020, she staged the most northerly climate strike by protesting in the Arctic Circle in the north of Sweden, and I'm sure we'll hear a little bit more about that. Uh, Today and this year, she received an honorary doctorate in science from the University of Bristol. And what's not in my notes, but I spotted the other day, is Maya uh, has just won the accolade of being featured on the Women's Hour Power List um, on BBC Radio 4, which we're all really excited for you about. That's looking at uh, celebrating the contribution women are making across the UK to the health and sustainability of our planet. So congratulations on that, Maya-Rose. I hope hope you're um, pleased to be with us today. We're certainly pleased to have you. Um, Over to you.
11: Thank you so much.
4: I feel like that was a very glowing review that I'm gonna struggle to sort of follow up on now, especially after Carly's brilliant presentation um, unfortunately I don't have slides because it always goes wrong when I try and use them on zoom um, so I'm just going to talk instead <laughs> um, unfortunately for you guys I suppose um, yeah so my name's Maya I'm 18 and I'm an environmental activist and but also a campaigner for diversity and the big project that I've been doing um, for nearly five years now has been to increase diversity increase the types of people um, coming into the nature sector going out into the countryside but also engaging in the climate change movement um, so i was a massive bird watcher growing up i've always been super into nature um, but i realized when i was sort of 11 or 12 that most other kids that looked like me essentially most kids who weren't white um i never saw them going out into nature i never saw anyone else look like me out in the environment in the countryside and i found that really upsetting as someone who nature had been such a massive part of my life that other people weren't getting that same opportunity um so when i was 13 in 2015 i started running nature camps um that uh it was it was literally just I wanted to spend time out in the countryside helping other kids to have those opportunities that I'd had and originally when I started I wasn't planning on doing like a big uh, campaign or anything I just wanted to help Um, and the camps went really well I've done nine of them now they're amazing Um, and I think the biggest thing for me the biggest realization with these camps has been the fact that like as someone who nature has been such a massive part of my life, I suppose getting that understanding that it is completely alien for these kids that I'm working with. A lot of them have never even been to the countryside. They're excited when we drive past the fields and we see the sheep and the cows. It's something that's completely different and it has to be very gentle uh, acclimatization. Um, But after that first camp, I ended up writing to various nature NGOs in the UK and asking them what they were doing about the issue and the answer was not a lot um basically um and they all invited me up to speak to them but I couldn't because I had school so I invited them all to one place and I invited various race experts from different communities to come and talk to them rather than a 13 or 14 year old girl and essentially I accidentally ended up organizing a conference in 2016 called race equality in nature um and it was actually incredibly successful just because i think that historically there had been an issue where it was um, such like one type of person that was in the nature sector going like uh, working for these organizations that they had no idea where to even start when it came to engaging with these communities and the people who came in the experts literally just like sat down gave them like 20 things that were wrong 20 things they could do to solve it and that was that um but I still didn't see action after the conference, um, even though I'd literally given the blueprint of how to solve the issue. So I ended up starting my organisation Black to Nature, um, which I've been running ever since. And it's all about both giving help and support to organisations and people in the sector to figure out how to engage with more people, but also to make sure that it isn't an issue that's going to, I suppose, um, slide away into the corner again, like it has done historically. so sorry i'm running out of time um so i guess long long story short there is a massive issue with diversity in all of these areas that are environment related there was a study done in 2016 that showed that it was about 0.6 percent minority ethnic the nature sector it's shocking it's the second worst in the uk um And that's having a knock on effect on the climate change movement, on environmental movement, on just the way that people engage with the outdoors, um, which I think we've actually noticed during the pandemic, uh, where people have suddenly realized that they have been cut off from nature. Um, And I think that to make the climate change movement sustainable, to make sure that it's, I suppose, helping everyone and supporting everyone, we have to engage with people from every sector of society or it's not going to work uh, otherwise. Thank you.
5: Thank you so much, Maya uh, Rose. It's so wonderful to hear someone with so, such great passion and enthusiasm and excitement to get on with just doing stuff. And I think that's that's absolutely something we can learn from you, is how you can just follow what you what your dreams are and and want to see a change in the world and just get on there and out there and do it. But before we get on to Nell and Elliot from the Eco Emeralds, I think we're going to hear from your head teacher, um, guys. So we're going to hear first from Jeremy, Jeremy Barnes, is head teacher at All Saints. Uh, catholic primary school in anfield liverpool he believes that schools should be leaders in their communities and should educate the whole child irrespective of ability or disability he's the grown-up behind the eco emeralds uh, the group of environmentalists who inspired the national backyard nature campaign as you've just heard from hill jeremy advocates for schools to nurture activism connection to community and leadership and all of these are bound together by a common concern for the future of our planet jeremy we'd love to hear from you over to you
15: Thank you very much, Nick, and thank you very much, Semble, for uh, inviting me and the children, um, and and welcome here. Hello from the People's Republic of Liverpool. Uh, firstly, I'd just like to um, I'd just like to uh, say that I'm very much know my place here. I am definitely the warm up act for the children, uh, so I will be as brief as I possibly can. Uh, But I just wanted to give you some sort of reflections uh, on the work we do in the school and how that relates obviously to um, the amazing uh, impact of the Eco-Emeralds. We are in Anfield, uh, in in inner-city Liverpool, and obviously that word is very, very well known around the world by football fans in particular, and thousands of fans will walk the streets uh, around our school and within the community and their heads are fixed on the stadium and they don't really see the environment around and they're not really aware of what's happening and there is an awful lot happening and it's these children that are leading it the children of families they've come together to link uh community to the world around them to share a love of nature and of the beautiful planet that we inhabit and they've already inspired uh, thousands of people Uh, through the Backyard Nature campaign and of course this was featured in the the ITV documentary A Planet For Us All where the children were were chatting away to Prince William merrily uh, and uh, showing leadership to him. Now for me too often environmentalism is seen as a a sort of middle-class rural uh, domain Um, but here it's the children of blue-collar workers who are very much leading, the children of taxi drivers, the children of cleaners, Uh, And they're showing that inner city areas can provide inspirational leadership in how we can uh, improve our environment. And my argument is that that starts in school. And I'd like to make three points around that, that one about activism, one about community, and one about leadership, um, and they're all bound by this interest and concern for the future of our planet. So the first point is a call really, I think, to a more sort of benevolent, benign activism the Eco-Emeralds did the bulk of their work in the school and and our curriculum is flexible enough to allow the pupils to to share their work with each other, uh, to develop greater depth and interest in what they're doing um, in this area and we've dissuaded them really from using vocabulary around demands and rights and focus more on personal responsibility and, and how they can contribute and serve the common good. Uh, I think too often environmentalism is seen as a sort of aggressive, hectoring activity done by other people. Uh, I argue it should be at the heart of the curriculum, irrespective of politics, irrespective of of ideology. For me, schools are are part of the solution uh, by teaching pupils how to persuade, how to argue, how to separate truth from rumour, articulate their learning clearly in their community, uh, and given the opportunity to love the world around them and behave with humility and compassion and that's my second point that education needs to be much better connected to its communities and i'm afraid initially through safeguarding concerns then the sort of terrorism worries, you know schools have put up fences they put up walls uh, which separates them from their communities the very communities that they are purporting to serve and they've, lost, they've lost contact with the streets and with the estates and, and what the Eco Emeralds have shown is that when pupils and parents and teachers and businesses and community groups can come together in a common cause, amazing things can happen. You know, like being visited by the future king. Um, you know, only today uh, I visited a, a piece of council land, uh, and they've donated that to us. Now that wouldn't have happened if they hadn't got all these people together. Uh, and we're working along two local charities in what we're going to do with that piece of land uh, in the middle of the community. And, and the condition of the environment is something that I just think that all communities can get behind and schools can provide that sort of conduit uh, to develop the optimism. Um, there's a park that we're currently transforming into a, a wildflower meadow and it was vandalized on bonfire night. Um, now because of the high profile the eco-emeralds have got, They've already raised over £2,000, uh, to put it right. Uh, and that's testimony to the amount of supporters that they've got that this is a community-led uh, environmental initiative. And that, that brings me on to my final point, which is around leadership. And I just think that we need, in schools, we need to value leadership more uh, and promote it within a very sort of safe environment. The, the Eco-Emerald Initiative would, would not have happened if, there hadn't been a culture of leadership in the school which gave the children or trusted the children to sort of follow up on on their on their passion but all within a climate of trust um, and teachers need to be given that autonomy they need to be given the encouragement to seek out learning and experiences that can spark children's interests spark their confidence uh, and develop that action and that activism in their pupils and obviously it needs to be age-appropriate, and the teachers will use their expertise to do that. Um, But I think back uh, and Hill was there when the eco Emeralds presented their case to a room full of of charity leaders and and CEOs, um, you know, and it was organized by the fabulous Iceland uh, Food Charitable Foundation. And yes, their teachers supported the children with their preparations. They were the ones who were expected to take on the responsibilities of leadership within a very safe environment. And they responded magnificently. So where do the Eco-Emeralds go here? Well, I want to take them to COP26. I think they need to go there. I think they need to be part of that. And that's going to be my my sort of aim over these next few months to see if we can do that. Um, But who better to put their case to you than the Eco-Emeralds themselves? And we've got the two leaders here, Nell and Elliot who founded the group and uh, I'll, I'll hand over to them.
5: Um I, I I want to thank Jeremy, but I'll thank you afterwards. It sounds like you're desperate to come in, Nell and Elliot. So, um, <laughs> please do go ahead.
14: Um I'm Elliot and that I'm, I'm Nell and Elliot. LA. <laughs> um and we started the Emeralds because um we didn't like the fact that people were harming the environment just for a tub of ice cream because uh, the ice cream had palm oil in um, and I didn't like that so I decided to start Niko Emeralds to stop that and then we got in touch with Iceland and they helped us and then that's where we've come to yeah
9: so if in the- hall Elliot was eating his lunch and in fact he was about to eat his ice cream but then he realised that he was looking at the ingredients and then he saw that palm oil was in there then later that night he researched what palm oil looked he was curious about it found out that it it was killing 25 monkeys a day and to get an ice cream pot that big and and the whole reason he went world stars was basically in the lunch hall because of ice cream um, um, Iceland, challenged us to
14: yeah. start helping bees
9: because
14: um, um, bees the bee bees cover, population was declining,
9: and it was bees cover seventy five percent of our food. In seventy five percent of our food and crops, so that that will make a massive impact. Whether we liked did or not, it's it was all like responsibility, and we took that to our actions. And then we realized that we could do something more about it and then earlier um, decided to say well we need we need something about it
5: it is absolutely incredible guys what you've achieved because from from doing this little piece of research you effectively contacted a, a big business and got their ear and then invited them to your school and and after you talk to them about the bees what does that then triggered because I think that's become a, a bigger project, has it?
14: Yeah. yeah. Um. It's one it brought the future king to our school, which was really exciting. Um. Back back on, on, what's his name? Um, what and do. we've
9: been on ITV. Iceland and Oxford Films helped us a lot because as soon as we like figured out how to like get in touch with Iceland then after our Iceland adventure we went on to um, go into Iceland contact was it Iceland who contacted Oxford Films mm, yeah. yeah Iceland contacted Iceland Films and then they real and then they came to our school the camera crew and We filmed and took pictures with Backyard Nature and we went to London to launch it. Then we went to London and when we came back from London, we realised it got bigger and more people knew our name. And once we launched Backyard Mm -hmm. Nature, a few hours ago, like an hour or two ago, we googled in Backyard Nature and there's thirteen thousand three hundred and something. Three hundred and one Backyard Nature Guardians. So thirteen thousand and three hundred and one people signed up and now know our name.
5: That's an incredible um, accolade, really. That's an incredible testament to the work that you guys have done. And tell tell me a bit more about um, what inspires you to take environmental action. You talked about the palm oil and you talked about bees, but I know that you've been doing other work in your school grounds.
14: Um, what inspired us was um, we wanted to help the envir- <clears throat> we wanted to help the environment because we don't really want it to be destroyed because it's our home and we've got to learn to look after it. Um, Also we've been working on pollution around the school because there's a big problem with the cars and parking around the school because we can't use the car park anymore for the teachers because we've got to use it as a playground Playground, because of social distancing. So it's quite hard to partner around the
9: school now, so that's a project we've been working on.
5: Great. And can you tell us a little bit about what it was like meeting Prince William?
9: Well, he's very tall. Yes. Um. he's very, like, very well spoken, very down to earth. <laughs> he's, he listens, mm-hmm.
14: he... Um, he was a good environmentalist.
5: <clears throat> I think he, knows, he knows quite a lot about the issues, right? And you had a good conversation yeah. with him. And I believe you showed him some of your creations around the school. Would you like to tell us a bit about about some of those?
14: Um, we made, <clears throat> we made a book hotel. Um, oh, Boggingham Palace. Buckingham Palace.
9: <laughs> um, and he was we, and then like to get the official approval of a royal fa- a royal
7: a royal and <laughs>
9: um, um, yeah. we made Prince William yeah. put the flag in the
5: top. oh fantastic that's really exciting we've got a question uh from the people listening to you today uh so somebody's asking uh, kirsty hammond is asking what do your parents think of your achievements
9: i don't really think they know how big of a deal they are what do you think <laughs> of our achievements yeah. very proud of you very proud of us
5: <laughs> very good Well,
9: <We're> fantastic <laughs> fantastic um keep the good work up. and we should keep the good work up.
5: well that's great guys and I, i'm just intrigued as well you talked about the palm oil issue and the orangutans what change would you like to see in the world and what would you say to boris johnson if you ever got the chance to meet him
9: if i got the chance to say something to boris johnson i would say fix your air fix your hair then fix your country
5: wow that's a great slogan elliot you agree with that
9: yes
14: his hair is a bit of a mess now that he's back (laughs) um at home for two weeks
5: great that's that might be coming with being a new father I i suppose um what's your next project guys
9: we each year in our school has been assigned a project um, I'm in charge of year six and we're going to be getting an aquaponics for each class and it's like a big tub and they've got like two layers, one's got the fish and the other's got the plants in. Then the fish's oxygen comes out of them and their waste goes up into the plants and helps them grow. Then. It just as like a cycle keeps going and going and going.
5: That sounds really exciting.
9: Um, and I'm
14: working with Year Five, Year five on litter picking around the area to make sure that everywhere's clean and nice for everyone. And then
9: they, are they also get a patch.
14: Yeah. Um, we've been gifted. They've been gifted a patch behind the stadium, and it's quite big and. They've been thinking of some ideas of what to
9: do with it. And some people have said to do like split sections. it into four sections.
5: Yeah. And grow some fruits, like some fruit. plants and vegetables. There's <laughs> some really exciting projects on the horizon. And um, I'm going to ask you some of the questions just while we have you, because I know you're not going to be able to stay for the whole session, but we have some other questions coming in at the side. Um, one question is having met our future King, do you think that he will take care of the future of the planet?
14: one second can you repeat that
5: having having met our future king do you feel that he is going to take care of the future of the planet
9: i don't reckon him on his own is going to take care of it we all have to take care of it because as backyard nature said our planet our our patch our planet
5: brilliant and there's a lot of kids around uh, the country who would like to follow your example and i know we have a question here uh, posed by poppy who's in year four in bristol and wants to know what advice you could give her bristol's the other end of the country to you guys so what <laughs> advice could you give her to do something similar in her inner city school
9: it doesn't have to be as big as what we have done it could be just not if you have like a dog Not saying that you have to have a dog <laughs> But if you have the dog making sure that they have picked up the waste and not like just letting it lie there because then it's just like a mess really and then if like your parents or like whoever looks after you, if they're parking, make sure they're parking in a suitable area for like, so they're not, so they're not like making babies or walking or people who are like, like who are asthmatic or like have breathing problems, they aren't like struggling. Because then it's a bit like more of a, it's very problematic. Um, It doesn't have to be too big because we only started
14: yeah. with a letter to Iceland and a petition. Um, um, All you really need to do is plant some seeds or vegetables and then you're set.
5: Now, Elliot, that's great advice and i know that thanks to your seed planting activity you've inspired iceland to help uh, give seed balls out to the whole country and to date i believe they've given out three hundred and thirty thousand seed balls uh, or more uh, with uh, over 15 million wildflowers being planted so it's incredible and and thanks very much to your inspiration for the campaign overall any final messages for us before you have to leave
9: Um, just yes yeah (laughs) just keep following like what look up to someone i want you to to watch what they do then if they're doing the right thing follow them but take to account what you need to do and what your planner is for because imagine when you're 25 and you're like you're still like struggling with the planet you want to make sure that your children and their children live in a safe environment.
12: This is a unique opportunity to make changes for the future of our planet. The impossible has happened. The world has paused. The earth has taken a deep breath and we've seen nature come back into all of our lives. The world from towns and cities to villages and hamlets has a renewed appreciation of nature. And I think an understanding of how vital it is to our very survival. The Indian author Arundhati Roy recently said, historically pandemics have forced humans to break with the past and imagine the world anew. This one is no different. It's a portal, a gateway between one world and the next. She offers us hope, as do all of our winners. So before we say goodbye, let's hear from this year's new Ashton leaders.
13: The choices that we make every day has a lasting impact not just on our future but the future of generations to come
3: to work towards halting the climate crisis is to focus equally on societal sustainability and environmental sustainability
0: we need to find particularly energy solutions that work at the community level
10: o problema mundial dessa emergência climática nos faz querer criar soluções para minimizar o impacto for awesome. us to protect the environment,
6: not only for us, but for the future generations as well. Climate change impacts detrimentally the poorest who are least responsible the most. The need for climate action is urgent
13: and is now because it's no longer a distant threat.
12: We as energy entrepreneurs
6: really
14: have to learn how to work together more effectively with the government.
1: When, when all logic tells you to give up, that's when you continue, you persist. Time has come for action
15: and address climate change now.
13: We must ensure that our climate innovation puts our most vulnerable users at the heart of transformation.
1: You want to make real change? Never, ever give up.
0: Thank you for listening to our latest episode of the Doorways to Sustainable Schools podcast. Please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast player. Don't forget to look out for us in two weeks time when we'll have another inspirational story from somebody I know you're going to love. See you in two weeks.